0: The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Well, go ahead and have a seat. I want to uh, bring you greetings from the uh, land of uh, rednecks, rockets, and roll tide, and uh, You might not know how those all fit together, but they do. Um, It's uh, an interesting place to live down in Huntsville among all the engineers um, that are taking care of all the different rockets and things that you see uh, shooting into the sky these days. Um, If you ever get down there, I'd encourage you to come down and check out the Rocket Center and spend some time in our our wonderful city. And uh, it's uh, great too to be here with you. Um, I think Ryan was nice. He didn't want to tell me, uh, he didn't want to say that I'm old. But um, you know, I, I appreciate you judiciously telling me that you know us older guys that are starting to get gray hair, you know, get to hang out with younger guys. Um, but uh, no, it, it is a, a blessing, and I gain just as much uh, by spending time w- with your pastor and and being able to be encouraged and being pointed towards Christ and um, encouraging of. His family and what uh, the way he 's working with them and with you, and so uh, you guys are truly blessed uh, and have uh, a great pastor and I hope you are encouraged and you encourage him well let me uh, let me pray, and then uh, we 'll get to work in god 's word this morning God, I thank you that you are the God who reveals yourself. Lord, you have displayed your immense power, your amazing creativity, and your divine virtues in the creation that you've made. And Lord, you have communicated who you are and what you demand in the word that you have given us. But most fully and finally, you have revealed who you are and what you have accomplished for us in your son. And Lord, I pray this morning that as we open up your word, as we seek to understand what it has to say to us, that we would see the divine word more clearly. Lord, I confess that There is nothing that I can do this morning of any eternal significance, but you, by your word and through your spirit, not only can, but desire to work in us. So God, change us this morning, transform us by these things. That we might be in a greater likeness to the one that we call and sing to as our Savior, Jesus Christ. So work in us this morning, even in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to play a little Christian word association game with you. Um, As I say a word, maybe in your notes, or maybe just as you're sitting there thinking about it, uh, I want you to see if you can kind of come up with the opposite of what I'm going to say. And we'll start off with something easy, right? If we think about scriptures, we think about the Old Testament. So... Contrasting to the Old Testament is the New Testament, right? We think about the picture and the symbol of light in the Scriptures, and the opposite of that is darkness, right? Or if you think about different characters in the Bible, you think of somebody like David, and to David you have Goliath, or different places in the Bible. You have Jerusalem, which is often contrasted with Babylon in the scriptures. Or you think of concepts like sin, and contrasting to that, righteousness. Or punishment, and you think of grace. When you think of these contrasts, if I were to say the word legalism, what would you think of as the opposite? Now, if, if you have enough money in your pocket to pay for a $10 theological word, you, you might think of the word antinomianism. If you're not quite sure what that is, it's basically, if you think of legalism as the desire to live out your, your existence before God with all of these different um, rules in place and making sure that you are, are doing all the things that God wants you to do, That would be legalism living in the midst of all of the different rules and laws. And the opposite of that, oftentimes people think of as antinomianism, anti-meaning none and no-meaning law. So having no law, living as if there isn't any law. As if God has not said what he calls us to do. But I want to suggest to you this morning that that contrast isn't quite the way that we should see things. We often think of different concepts in scripture and we put them on a theological teeter-totter, right? If you have one that weighs down too much, we put something on the other side and it weighs it out, gets it in the middle. So that's maybe why we think of legalism on one side and antinomianism on the other side. But I'd like to suggest to you that there is something that actually should balance those out. Sinclair Ferguson in his book, The Whole Christ, provides an important insight to think about this contrast. And I want you to to listen to what he says. He says, there is one genuine cure for legalism. It's the same medicine the gospel prescribes for antinomianism. Understanding and tasting union with Jesus Christ himself. Hear what he said? The thing that contrasts between legalism and antinomianism is not them balancing out each other, but it's actually us understanding and tasting union with Jesus Christ himself. He goes on to say this leads us to a new love for and obedience to the law of God now which he mediates to us in the gospel. This alone breaks the bonds of both legalism and antinomianism. This morning, I want to help you understand what it means to be unified or be in union with Christ. Because when we begin to understand that, as Sinclair Ferguson says, it's going to help us live out our Christian life. It's going to help us actually live in obedience to what God has called us to do, and a misunderstanding of that will actually put us on one or other uh, the other side of that teeter totter, and put us in danger of living outside of the way God calls us to live. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to John chapter 15, and that's where we're going to camp out for the majority of our time this morning. In John 15, we have what's often referred to as the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse. Here Jesus is just a a few hours away from going to the cross. And and in these few chapters, he has these intimate conversations with his disciples. And here he's going to give them kind of in, in one sense his last words of encouragement And here he's going to help us understand this idea of being in union with him. I'm going to read verses 1 all the way down through verse 17 to give us the context here. This is what God's word says. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you these things I command to you so that you may love one another. I want to give you three ideas this morning in thinking through this passage Three ideas about how your union with Christ fits together with your communion with Christ. And you may wonder, what do I mean by union with Christ and communion with Christ? Well, let me define those a little bit. The, the first thing is union with Christ and I'm going to borrow from Louis Berkhoff and his description of union with Christ he says it's the intimate vital spiritual union between Christ and his people in virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength and of their blessedness and their salvation Man, that is such a great description of what it means to be in Christ. And so if you want shorthand for this union idea with Christ, it's being in Christ. It's the the phrase that Paul uses throughout his epistles to describe our connection. And as Berkhoff describes it here, the intimate, vital, spiritual connection with Christ. Then when I think about communion with Christ, I'll borrow from another theologian, John Owen, and here's his description of our communion with Christ. He says our communion with God consists in him communicating himself to us and us returning to him the things he requires and accepts. It's a nearness to God that works out of love and towards obedience. So if you want to use the idea that union in Christ is being in Christ, you might say communion with Christ is being with Christ. Or if you want to think about it differently, you might say your union with Christ is your position and your communion with Christ is your practice. How does that ultimately work its way out? And I think what we see here in John 15 is Jesus helping the disciples understand this relationship between union and communion. How is it their position and their place in Christ works itself out into their life? The first thing that I want you to see in these is that your union with Christ precedes your communion with Christ. In other words, there's a process, there's a progression that these happen in. And your union comes first. This necessary, vital, organic, life-giving connection between the vine and the, and the uh, branches here precedes the fact that it produces fruit. L- look again at the passage here. He says, He's building this analogy, this picture. "I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser." Some writers and commentators think, as you go back into 14, they're in the upper room, and he says, "Rise and let us go out from here." They're, they might at this point be traveling between the upper room to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they might even be passing by vineyards. And Jesus takes this occasion to kind of almost point in that direction and say, Hey, I want want to use this illustration to, to help you understand something. But he's barring a very ancient idea here the idea of a vine, and the vine dresser was one used throughout the Old Testament, and often Israel is the true vine. But here he says, I am the true vine. And the Father is the one who cares for the vineyard. He says, though, that this connection, this union with Christ, is the thing that precedes and begins our communion with Christ. Before we can bear fruit or have communion with Christ, we must have this connection with him. And outside of that, we have no life or no ability even to bear this fruit. Jesus is clear that this had already happened for the disciples. Look at verse 3. He says, already you have become clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. This was a reality for the disciples, the people that he was speaking to. And if you have any question about that, you can go down to verse 16. Because he says, listen, this has already happened to you because I chose you. It's not something that we do or attain to. It's not something that we we work toward. It's something that we are granted and we are given. This union with Christ. Christ. Paul gives an amazing theological description of our union with Christ in in Romans chapter 6. That we are associated, we are connected. In other passages, he talks about we are clothed with Christ. You can look at Romans chapter 6 in verse 3. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with him in a death like his and we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that this body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. He goes on to highlight the fact that this union with Christ is the reality of what happens to someone when they come to faith. See, the Problem, though, is that we often invert the order. Union precedes communion, but we often get it in the opposite order. I'll get closer to Christ, and then therefore I will be unified with him. Sometimes that's because we even think about biblical illustrations wrongly. One of the associations, one of the illustrations of our connection with Christ is the illustration of marriage, right? We are the bride of Christ. And oftentimes when we think about our union and our communion, we we think about it in terms of how we do marriage. We don't start with union. We start with communion. Communion. We start with connection. We start with relationship. Now, in our family, there's a, a, a story somewhat, you can decide if it's mythical or not. There's debate in our family. My wife and I met when we were in junior high school. And for whatever reason, the church that we went to decided that in junior high school, it was a good idea that anytime there was a visitor, they were to stand up and to be introduced which is just about the most intimidating thing you can do as a junior hire, And this was a pretty large youth group. I was a Midwestern kid that had moved to California. I stood up in the midst of probably 100, 150 middle school students, and I get introduced as Andy Wolfe. Now, if you know anything about middle schoolers, right? Anything at all, you immediately know what happened, right? You do not go through your life with the name Wolf without somebody making fun of it. As I'm getting introduced, someone throughout the crowd howls. And I guarantee you, it was my wife. (laughs) And that is how our relationship started. Now she might dispute that. She's not here this morning so I can tell the story and she can't, she can't say anything about it. But we met soon after that and we began to develop this relationship. And years later we were married and we entered into a union, into a covenant relationship. Oftentimes we think of our relationship with Christ that way, don't we? I'm going to have a connection. I'm going to build a relationship. I'm going to get closer to him. I'm gonna know more about him. That I would ultimately be in union with him. But that's not the way that the scripture talks about our relationship. It's not like those earthly relationships, in fact, I would maybe even argue that when we think about the illustration of marriage in Scripture, we actually don't think about it rightly because even in marriage in Scripture, union usually came before communion. Not advocating a kind of dating, but oftentimes it was an arranged marriage where they said this was the one you're going to marry. And so we're going to put you in that covenant relationship. And the actual relationship developed after the actual union. So what does that mean? Well, if union precedes communion, then the union is secure. It doesn't depend on our continuation or even our beginning that relationship because it is God who is the one who has united us to him. We don't work our way into this. It exists at the moment of regeneration and now it is secure for us. Our union precedes our communion. But Jesus continues to help them understand this relationship here in John 15. Because he helps them understand what it enables. So the second thing I want you to think about this morning is not only does union precede communion, but union enables communion communion. It enables this communion. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. He's picking up a an agricultural illustration that would have been very familiar. They lived in the land of vineyards. The majority of what they consumed would probably be less water than it was actual the fruit of the vine. And so they understood at a very basic level how this worked. That the life and the vitality of the vine flows out from the branch, and it provides the life and the power that enables it to produce fruit. When a branch is disconnected, it does not bear fruit. In other words, without this union with Christ, there is nothing, as he says there in verse 5, that you can do. Now, I'm not one of those people that has a natural green thumb. My wife does a little bit of gardening. I try to stay as far away from it as possible. I've even got my son to mow the yard now, so I can look from my air-conditioned window and wave. But I I know enough that when I look out my window and I see different things out there, we happen to have a a mulberry tree in one part of the yard and some blueberry bushes that we planted a few years ago. I I can look at it and I can see those bushes and you know what? As they grow, they produce fruit. But as things happen here in the South, right, these warm summer days give way to Wind and rain in the middle of the afternoon, right? And so I can also look out my yard and strewn throughout my yard are all of the sticks, right? All of the branches that are sitting there. And you know what I don't see on any of those branches? I don't see any fruit. In fact, most of those branches are usually the ones that are sitting up in the trees, dead anyway that are just getting blown out what Jesus is saying is listen as you have this union as you have this connection as you have this vitality that runs through you that is the thing that actually enables you to produce fruit What is he talking about here in terms of fruit? Some people, as soon as they see the word fruit in scripture, they often think of converts, right? Fruit means somebody who's come to faith through you. I think that's a little bit foreign to the passage here, but it's possible. But fruit is definitely, in verse 10, obedience to the words that Jesus has said, right, he he says that specifically, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. But it's not just simple obedience. There, There seems to be more than that. Look at verse 11. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So this fruit is not just simply doing what God says, but it's actually a a transformative reality that you're doing what God says and it's actually bringing joy into your life. And further than that, verse 12 and 13, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another that I have loved you. Not only is this fruit obedience, and you could say it's obedience driven by joy, but it's actually loving those that are around you. D.A. Carson in his commentary says that this fruit bearing is the sum of the actions of the Christian life. To try to limit it to one kind of thing limits it too far. It's not a specific action or inclination, but it's the whole of Christ's life flowing through you. In fact, in some ways, I would say this fruit is the natural outflow of the life of the vine coming out into the branch it's the natural outflow i think that's actually why this concept this idea of fruit is used many times in scripture right we think and we you know we do sunday school classes and vbss on the fruit of the spirit we have all these fruits of the spirit and yet the whole analogy of fruit is actually the fact that this is what it naturally does now, that doesn't mean we don't focus on it or we don't think about it. But he said, this is just the, the life of the branch coming out because that's the life of the vine. And in fact, the picture here, even in, in 15, is that God the Father, verse 2, prunes. That it may be more fruitful. Again, that's the role of a good gardener is actually cutting back certain fruits so that they will be more plentiful, that they will produce better fruit. And this isn't a negative thing. It's actually a beautiful, wonderful thing. So that we would get big, luscious peaches and apples off the trees. So what does this mean? Well, if union enables communion, then oftentimes if there is a problem in the communion area, we need to consider, understand, live in the reality of our union with Christ. Oftentimes we're out here trying to produce fruit when we have lost sight of the fact that we are unified to Christ. Because this union enables our communion. So union precedes communion, union enables communion, but I want you to see one more thing here. Closely related, but I think important. Union actually empowers communion. It doesn't just enable, it, it doesn't just turn the switch on so it's able to happen. It actually empowers this fruit to be produced. Look back again at John 15 verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus is saying here, listen, I want you to understand that this connection, this vital union with Christ is actually what empowers your communion with him. You, at least I have a hard time reading verse 12 and verse 13 without my mind going immediately to about what, what's about to happen, right? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. It's one of those moments in scripture where I'd love to see the disciples' faces. Not at this moment, but at the moment they remembered these words as Christ was on the cross. Oh, that's what he meant. Here he is purchasing my salvation. Here he is in the reality of his death, paying the penalty for my sin. Here he is in the reality of him conquering Satan's sin and death as he rises from the tomb. Greater love has no man than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. And even that at the end, right? We we tend to focus on the beginning in the act of Christ, but again, listen to how the position has changed. I mean, to the ancient Jewish ear, to say, listen, I am a friend of God, was a gigantic claim. I'm a friend of God? You could say I was a servant of God, right? That title's all throughout the Old Testament. But to say I'm a friend of God? And yet, what does Jesus say right here? You are no longer servants, you are friends that's why I want you to understand that this union this connection this work of Christ that has now been given to you not only enables you to produce fruit but actually empowers you to do it as we sit and we contemplate, as we sit and understand the reality of what Christ has done. And now, not only has he done it outside of us, but he has given it to us. It transforms us and enables us. I used to look at this passage as a bit of a scary passage. A passage that you looked at and you kind of looked at because it was a fruit-checking passage, right? Well, am I in or am I out? What am I doing? Am I doing this or not doing this? But the more that I think about this passage and the more that I consider it, it becomes this beautiful, reassuring passage and empowering to understand that now, yes, I have not only the ability, but the empowerment. And it's not only that I have to obey Christ, but I get to. He has loved me so purely and completely and overwhelmingly Did I have the opportunity and the privilege to be in communion with him? I don't think of this as a scary passage. I mean, think of the context. Jesus is hours away from going to the cross. I don't think he's telling his disciples like, you guys better check your fruit. I think he's saying to them, guys, I want you to understand what you have because what you are about to face we now have the ability but have also been given the power to live and be connected to the one who has redeemed us and so this doesn't just become a checklist of spiritual disciplines but it becomes a working of love and joy from the heart I love what he says there in verse 11 right Because when we tend to think of obedience, right, we think of this weight. Be obedient. Do what you're told. And yet here he's he's putting it in such a different context. He's saying, listen, I want you to do this, that you would keep my father's commandments and you would abide in this love, that you would have joy You would have my joy. What joy is that? The joy that I have had as I have fulfilled the Father's will. And that joy may be yours. This union empowers your communion with Christ. I think all of us tend to, going back to the beginning, be on that theological teeter totter. Some of us tend to be on that legalism side. We want to rule for everything. We want to live out our life. We want to hedge everything, make sure that we're doing everything that God tells us to do. And so we add things to God's law. And then other of us tend to be on the other side. We want to throw off all the restraints. Maybe it's where you've come from. Maybe where, where you've been around or what has influenced you. So you think of, oh, I just I, I, I want to, to live in this freedom. And sometimes we, if we are more on that antinomian side, we tend to even put it in terms of, well, I'm just going to live in all this grace that God has given me. And yet... The solution is, I think Ferguson rightly and wisely laid down, is that we would understand the reality of who we are. That we have been people, united with, connected with, in a vital living relationship. In union with Christ. And when we begin to understand that, it becomes transformative. Don't pass by that concept in Scripture. As you read the Bible and you hear Paul saying, You are in Christ. What if we begin to stop and just ponder that reality? As we, we've sung it here this morning multiple times, right? The reality of what Christ has done. What if we were to stop and say, this is my place and my position If we were to do that, I think, based on what I see here in John 15, it would not only enable, but it would transform us. So that our communion, or to put it in the words of the passage, our obedience would now become a joy. that we would live not just a list of rules, but we would live in the reality of the love that Christ has given to us and that love then would be given to and demonstrated to those that are around us. The disciples begin to live this out. And it changed and transformed them. And I know that because they wrote all throughout the epistles of their union and their connection with Christ. And it formed the basis with which they called people to lives of communion and holiness and obedience to God. I pray we would have that same focus. Being people that understand that our union precedes our communion. We don't work our way. Being people that understand that our union enables our communion. And ultimately, our union empowers our communion with Christ. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the work that you have done Lord, we acknowledge you as the true vine. And the life that we have, any spiritual life that we have, has come from you. Lord, I I pray that you would help us to know and understand and feel that deeply. God, that we would be people that live out of what you have done for us. Lord, may we not only be encouraged this morning, but may we be empowered to do that by your word and through your spirit. Lord, we we praise you and thank you That you would come to this earth and live a perfect life. That you would die a sinner's death and you would be raised for us. Lord, may that never go far from our view. In Jesus' name, amen.